Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We are truly honored tonight to have as our special guest a true Hollywood treasure, two-time Emmy-nominated and five-time Golden Globe-nominated actress, writer, and producer, and environmental and conservation activist Stephanie Powers, who, in addition to her many credits in film and TV, serves as the founder of the William Holden Wildlife Foundation. Welcome, Stephanie. Well, that's an encapsulation. <laughs> that's a that's a, a rather good distillation. There's a bit more to there's a bit more to that. But uh, well, you know, uh, I, I, if I had ten more minutes, I might get through half of your half of your affiliations. You are you you are the definition of a working actor. I mean, you you have very few um, what I would consider. Um, uh place card holders you 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 were constantly working and um since we're a history side i'd like to kind of dive in to the early days i was recently seeing the new steven spielberg movie the fablemans i don't know if you've seen it yes yet. i did yes I saw it. so the first scene in the fablemans steven spielberg is a little boy is taken to the movie theater seems like for the first time and he sees cecil b demille's the greatest show on earth 1952 and is completely overwhelmed by it and the great train crash. I was wondering if you could look back into your memory book and tell me your earliest memory of going to the movies. Oh, boy. I'm not very good at that. I'll just say we used to. Um, oh, well, I guess I could give you. I could. Uh, um, I'm not very good when somebody says, what's your favorite and what's your earliest and what's your, I, I'm not very good at finding, isolating everything down to that finite uh, a choice. But I did, uh, I, I grew up as, during the time when local uh, neighborhood cinemas would, uh, would have matinee shows uh, expressly for kiddies. So parents would willingly dump their screaming children off and they would go, they would be babysat by the kiddies' matinees. And the kiddies' matinees would be filled with all sorts of silent films because it was it was pointless to for the for the theater owner to pay um, the extra charge to have a talking movie because you the kids were screaming so loud nobody could hear the dialogue anyway. <laughs> so what did we see? We saw all the best things. We saw um, um, Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. We saw the Keystone Cops. We saw uh, Laurel and Hardy. Talk about great comedy, physical comedy, extraordinary. And uh, and uh, I remember, I remember the first being impressed by the very first documentary, you might call it, wildlife documentary shot in Africa, which I later discovered and found out much more about, but it was, there was Osa and Martin Johnson, 
Does this ring a bell with you? No, probably not. Osa and Martin Johnson were financed by Charles Eastman. Eastman Kodak, you remember that name? Of course. Uh, so Charles Eastman financed them when they went off on their, their these mad trips to Africa. In fact, actually to near where I live in Kenya. Uh, to do wildlife photography. And uh, their story is an, is an amazingly wonderful tale of, of, uh, of uh, uh, great adventure and, and a, a great love and great innocence. And I remember this one particular uh, shot that was indelible on my brain. It was, it just, it, it, somehow I absorbed it. Um, she was a very diminutive person. She wore a hat, which looked like something from the mounted, the Mounties in, uh, in, uh, in Canada. And then she wore these very oversized jodhpurs and puttees, which were wrapped, uh, um, where your legs, your calves would be wrapped in uh, a bandage and for, instead of wearing a boot, they'd wear these puttees. And she walks out in, uh, you know, very quick movements um, and uh, out in front of the camera and her husband is behind the camera cranking away and photographing her. And uh, she, uh, somebody obviously off screen had said, oh, turn around. And she turns around and behind her is a charging rhinoceros. And obviously, whoever was protecting them while they filmed shot the rhino and, and brilliantly because he just dropped like a stone. And she turned back over to the camera, shrugged her shoulders and smiled and waved <laughs> as if to say, oh, well, you know, and, uh, <laughs> that, was, that was into my, my brain cells. And I completely forgot all about it until my first safari. Um, well, um, the first time I was out in the in the bush with uh, wildlife in East Africa, and all of a sudden it came back to me: Osa Johnson walking out and <laughs> and and a charging rhino behind her. So those were, I guess those were my first, my very first, uh, and oh yes, and there were always these wonderful musicals, Busby Berkeley musicals, with all the brilliant, brilliant shots that he would do with a thousand uh, uh, pianos, and uh, all these women with the, that they they were kicking at the same time, everything Brilliantly coordinated, Synchronous. and it wasn't it wasn't done with uh, um, with um, any kind of uh, of digitalization. It was actually the the real stuff. The real and that of, and that of course was sound. No, you actually heard no those CGI. Movies. No, no, Busby Berkeley it was in the silent films. I didn't realize that. I thought he was in sound. I'm sorry. It would that he was in the transition to sound, but he mm -hmm. also did silent films. Yes. Did you have any family that I know that it, I mentioned it was mentioned somewhere that your father at one point was a cinematographer. Was that was that a show business? No, my father invented a uh, my father was a photographer and he invented a process 
for which he got an Academy Award as a, and, and, and then the technical end of it. He invented a process whereby he enlarged with such perfection, he could enlarge photographs that he would then place on a huge uh, frame and they would stand outside the window of, uh, uh, of the set and, and, in, and reproduce, uh, perfectly reproduce uh, New York City or, or any other background that you, that you needed. And he painted them from the back so that when they were lit from the front, they were black and white. And when they were lit from behind, they were in technicolor, they were in color. So it's quite an, uh, an amazing process, which he invented and, uh, and was uh, rewarded for it. I, uh, I also read that when you were in ballet classes, when you were little, two of your classmates were Natalie Wood and Jill St. John. Is that true? Well, first of all, you have to, first of all, imagine that Los Angeles was a very, very small town. Most everybody was here because of the movie business in one way or another, or the aviation business because Lockheed was here, or um, the um, rubber tire business because there was a rubber tire. So there were only a few industries here. But one of the main draws for uh, certain groups of people was Hollywood and the motion picture industry. And because the town was so small, it was almost incestuous uh, when there was one, uh, uh, this particular teacher, ballet teacher, Michel Panayev, had been with the Ballet Russe, which was the very famous um, Russian ballet company that was, that, uh, was stationed in uh, and had its home then and now in Monaco, in Monte Carlo. And when the war came about, the Ballet Russe was on tour in the United States. And uh, as you know, um, no matter what your nationality is, when uh, in our country, in the United States, we, when we, war is declared uh, and there was the draft, automatically everyone uh, was, was uh, uh, had to serve. Everybody who got drafted, whether you were a citizen or not, you were obliged to serve or you had to leave the country. So uh, here was this ballet dancer who was <laughs> drafted during the Second World War because they were caught here when war was declared at uh, um, after after uh, Pearl Harbor, and uh, so he was drafted into the army and wound up uh, in a tank, <laughs> the tank corps. <laughs> really, a good place for a ballet dancer, wasn't it? And when the <laughs> war was over, uh, because everybody who served, and if you were not uh, a U.S. citizen, you had the option and a, uh, a preference to be considered for citizenship, because in fact you had fought for, for this country. And so he, the, you know, Europe was in ruins. The Ballet Russe was not uh, activated. The, the things had been bombed out and there didn't seem to be any point in his going back to Europe 
So he applied for citizenship. He came to California. He liked the palm trees and uh, set up a, uh, a ballet school. And he was very famous in because he brought with him this extraordinary uh, history and uh, his his credibility was um, was very advantageous to gaining a reputation. And so everybody and he had classes, ballet classes for professionals and for all ages, beginners and professionals. But he had a kiddies class. And so every mother who wanted her daughter to have grace, <laughs> have grace and, and movement, um, wanted to have, the, have their, uh, in those days it was popular to give your daughter uh, ballet class, ballet lessons. And eventually uh, he created a little ballet company uh, for kiddies. And, and uh, I was part of that. But in it it was coincidental but not that very that uh um difficult to imagine that we might all be in the same class because uh, uh that's where if you wanted your that was the optimum place to go that was the quintessential place in hollywood to go to have your daughter be exposed to ballet and there is a photograph uh, of Natalie Wood, Jill St. John, and myself. It's kind of steps. Natalie was the eldest, then came Jill, and then came me. And, uh, but we were, you know, th there were other people in the class as well. Some who became, um, Bobby Bannis, who became um, a professional dancer. Um, and uh, you can, I can pick him out in the background of some of the best musicals. Uh, uh, that were made in that in that period, including West Side Story, and um, uh, so as I said, I'm trying to explain that it was such a small world, sure, and that uh, that everybody everybody knew each other. Everybody growing up knew each other. Of course, they were older than I, so they were in a slightly different world because. Um, when you're that young, um, a couple of years, two, three years um, difference in age, three, four years of difference in age is a lot. It's huge. And uh, so they were teenagers when I wasn't. <laughs> and that's so a big difference. Did you, do you think by hanging around with... Um with elder statesmen like that or statespersons like that. Well, I wasn't hanging around. We were just in ballet class. You're just in the well and talking to them or maybe talking to their parents. Did you start thinking about the movies at all? No, 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 that... no, no, no. It really wasn't like that. It wasn't. Well, I wasn't there was no um I was focused on whatever I was focusing on. I was there by that time my uh, stepfather came into the picture and he bred uh, racehorses. So I I went from um, loving dancing and uh, being crazy about horses. So I had uh, I I was very well occupied. What what led you to the path of being in the movies? Um, because uh, one summer over the summer when I was about fifteen, um, 
I grew very fast to uh, almost my, my, my height that I have now, uh, which is about five foot seven and a half, five foot eight. And although I'm now shrinking, so it's, uh, I'm going the other way. Uh, and, uh, and the ballet and, oh yes, the other part of it was that my chest began to grow as well. So I got these things called tits, breasts, you know, that ballerinas did not have. Mm -hmm. So the ballet was certainly not going to be in my future, uh, but I love to dance. And there was the American School of Ballet that Eugene Loring, who came out from New York, established on Hollywood Boulevard. And he was in the basement of a wonderful building that's no longer there, uh, that had been a residential hotel in the glorious days of early Hollywood. And uh, the ballrooms, which were in the basement, became the two studios for dance that comprised the American School of Ballet. So I began to study jazz there uh, under a, uh, an extraordinary teacher, an extraordinary dancer called Matt Maddox, who was one of the seven brothers in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, sure. And, uh, he was one of that gorgeous redhead with the fabulous leg. And, and, uh, and he was, everybody, he, uh, all the girls in class were in love with him. And... Uh, and that was the beginning of being exposed to jazz dance, what was called uh, American jazz dance. And uh, at the at the theater, at the whoops, at the school, uh, they had a bulletin board, and they would post um, notices for auditions of traveling shows that were coming in from New York or touring or a music a movie that was being done or uh, something on television and variety show or something. And so I had a girlfriend who was a little bit older than I, and she had, uh, she could drive a car. We could get our licenses at 16 and she, uh, she had a license and a car. So the two of us used to go to all these auditions together. And, uh, because we were tall, uh, the, you know, they never looked at dancers' faces. They only looked at how you moved and all of this. And I guess we were, we were pretty good. <laughs> so uh, it, often, frequently, we'd, we'd be kept all the way to the end until the girl with the clipboard would come around to take our names and our details. And she'd look at us and do a double take and say, oh, my God, how old are you? And we'd stand up very tall and say, 17. And she'd say, get out of here. Well, on one of these occasions, we went to audition for a movie called West Side Story. Everybody on the West Coast, including a lot of people who flew from New York to audition in California for the movie, thousands of people were auditioning. I don't know what it was, but uh, both of us went back for about three or four auditions, but I wound up going to 16 dance auditions. Wow. And, and this, asked is, this is to your, 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 your uh, auditioning for Jerome Robbins? Yes, and, uh, and Robert Wise. 
And uh, then I was asked to come back and do a screen test. I did three screen tests and 16 dance auditions. And then uh, um, by this time I was 16, uh, but I was still underage because in those days you had to be 21 to be uh, of legal age. And uh, 18 was the, the out of school age. So by the time you were 18, you were either, you didn't have to have a teacher or a parent, or you had to have a parent on the set or, or a guardian on the set, but you, you didn't have to go to school on the set. But I was at that point 16. So- uh, Stephanie, which, which role were you auditioning for? Velma, one of the Jet Girls. There were two Jet Girls, uh, Velma and, uh, what was the other girl's name? Well, uh, uh, one uh, was... Uh, uh, Graziella. Yeah, Graziella. there was Graziella and Velma. And uh, uh, if you see the movie, it's not me. It's a woman, it's a wonderful dancer called Carol D'Andrea, who had done the part in New York um, in one of the companies. And uh, I, when I was fired, finally, <laughs> because I was, I was too young, uh, uh, Carol replaced me and I remained very, very friendly with everybody. George Chikaris uh, is one of my dearest friends and, uh, um, and a lot of the, of the, uh, the cast, uh, um, of Jets in particular, because I was, was, was Carol, was Carol the blonde or the redhead? The blonde. She was the blonde. Okay. So yeah, she was, she the, was the one who's, uh, Going out, I think, with Pretty Boy. Oubliou. No, she was she uh, she was Ice's. Ice's. Ice was her. Ice was her, who sings, cool. Cool, right, right, yeah. exactly. Ice was well, that. Her that voice. was quite an adventure. You got very close with that, and uh, but you um, when I actually watched one of your early movies just the other day, I, I decided I had to 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 get a little bit because I know this film very well. How early? <laughs> uh, I it was 1962, so it was the year after West Side Story was produced but or released, but I saw Experiment in Terror. Oh yeah. Experiment in Terror is a really terrific thriller and for the listeners who don't know this movie, it's directed by a gentleman who is known primarily for comedy directing, Blake Edwards. Well, not in those days he wasn't. Right. Blake, Blake was a writer-director, and he had come to, I don't know, he, had, he had done a, a lot of uh, small movies and even some, some a movie with um, Cary Grant, which he had done at, at Universal. But he became really famous for two remarkable groundbreaking television series one was called mr lucky and the other was called peter gunn right both of those that's where he and and henry mancini uh um met and formed their lifelong um uh collaboration and henry's uh henry's uh scores for Mr. Lucky and for Peter Gunnar are still played and still very famous. 
So it was that spinoff from those detective shows that were stylized and, and really groundbreaking for television. No one had ever seen the kind of photography he was doing and the way in which he directed and the way it was written and the kind of references. And of course the music was prominent. So it just, they were the hottest things on television. And television was not what it's considered to be now. Television, as far as the industry was concerned, was in its infancy. Uh, filmed television was in its infancy. And there was a distinct feeling that if you were in television, and even in my contract, when I went under contract to Columbia, I wasn't allowed to do television because the general feeling of the studios was, oh, well, we're going to spend all this time and investment grooming this actor or actress to become a star of the future on a property that we own. Why would we want to give it away for free on television? That was the philosophy. Now, everybody does television. Everybody wants to do television and now, there is no more division between a television actor or somebody who largely performs on television or largely performs in films. Everybody is crossing over the whole Everybody's time. in the same soup. Do you remember auditioning for Mr. Edwards? Uh, yes, it was a very unusual situation. Um, I was, uh, because I had, while I was doing a, a West Side Story, um, I met someone in the commissary. Uh, I was introduced to him because our script supervisor was a friend of his. He was an actor who liked to, to make small movies. And his name was Tom Loeffler. Uh, he became famous for a movie called Billy Jack. Of course. And, uh, but before that, he was you know, trying to be an independent filmmaker on all of this. And he... He asked me to come and read for him because he was making a movie and he had a part that he needed to cast. So I did and uh, and eventually when I got uh, fired from West Side Story, um, I did Tom's movie. And Tom had a benefactor who was a very big producer in uh, at um, 20th Century Fox. And um, he loved Tom and he loved his work. And uh, he had, was the very first private screening room in somebody's house that I ever went to. And uh, he got together all of these A-listed people in Hollywood, including other producers and directors and had a screening at his house. 35 millimeter screen came down out of the ceiling. And uh, no, I think it came up from the floor. That's what it did. It came up from the floor. And I mean, I was gobsmacked. My jaw hit the ground. I'd never seen anything like that. Behind every potted palm was someone like Audrey Hepburn. It was a very, very interesting uh, afternoon. And as a result of him being so enthusiastic about this movie, I was invited to join the contract players at MGM, 20th Century Fox and Columbia Pictures to um, go through this process that was very much a part 
of Hollywood and the old studio system, which meant that I would go and work on a scene uh, with uh, an actor from the, uh, who was under contract to the studio because all the studios had, you know, all sorts of classes that the contract players, the young actors up and coming uh, would go to acting, singing, dancing, sword play, all, every, all sorts of things that you had to learn. And so the idea was that you would do a scene with one of the contract players, you would perform, you would be coached and go to class, acting class, and then you would do the scene for the talent department. And then if they approved, then they would order a screen test. And then if the heads of the studio would see it, and if they approved, then you'd be offered a seven-year contract. And that's how it worked. So I was the hottest nobody in town. I was going to class <laughs> at MGM. I was going to class at 20th Century Fox. And at 20th Century Fox, Sandy Meisner, whose name in the annals of great theater and acting coaches in New York, the neighborhood playhouse, Sandy Meisner was the coach at 20th Century Fox. Zena Provendy was the coach at uh, MGM, who was a who was a protege of Stella Adler, who was Marlon Brando's great coach. And then the man who was the coach at Columbia was formerly with the San Francisco Rep. So they all had huge credentials and, uh, and it was a great honor to uh, study with them and listen and learn. So one day I was, um, I was late for class at Columbia. And uh, I now, grew Col up with Columbia, Columbia Pictures in those days, as I recall, was on Sunset Boulevard. Is that true? And Gower, yes. They called right. it Gower Gulch. Gower yeah. Gulch. And uh, so uh, the, the parking lot was right across the street from the entrance, uh, where there's now a mini mall. And uh, I ran in uh, to the front door. And uh, the guard let me go through. And I used to take a shortcut through the editing department. They had these swinging doors and narrow corridors, but I scooped through the editing department to get to the uh, upstairs where the, uh, the uh, classroom was for the actors, the young actors, the, the young performers of tomorrow. And at, at the time, uh, I, I had an older brother and all and and all these boys that I grew up with. So I had to do everything they did. And they were all super achievers, race car drivers and polo players and they flew airplanes and they did my God, they were glamorous. And I they were all, you know, four or five years older than I or but I was the kid. So I was always brought along as I don't know. Uh, some kind of uh, comedy relief or something <laughs> and uh, and one of them one of them interesting enough uh, uh, was a race car driver or he created one of the very famous race cars formula one racing cars of those days and was dr drove at the monte carlo rally the famous monte carlo rally and he brought the, these sunglasses back to me that were the very very latest 
trend of fashion on the French Riviera. And in those days, anything that was the latest trend of fashion on the French Riviera would take three years to get to California. So I'm wearing these glasses and I've got my little Porsche car and I, it was a, it was a, a quite an old Porsche that my brother had sold me when he was conscripted in the army because everybody used to have to do mandatory army in those days. So he sold me his car when he went into the army. I thought it was the greatest thing. It was just, it was a very old Porsche. Was it a convertible? No, no, it was a coupe. It was, it was a cool. 1800 uh, uh, cream colored coupe. Um, and so I, racing to class, I'm, I'm dodging through the swinging doors in the editing department and I push the door right into a man who's wearing the same glasses I am. And he said, where did you get those glasses? And I said, oh, well, my uh, my friend, uh, Lance Avendlo, uh was driving in the Monte Carlo rally and he gave me them. Where did you get yours? And he said, I was at the Monte Carlo rally. I said, oh, well, uh, he said, what do you do here? And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm an actress. He said, really? Are you any good? <laughs> and nobody had really asked me that before. <laughs> well, I think so, yes. I mean, yes, yes, of course I am. And he said, well, you should come and see me. He said, uh, I'm, I'm directing a movie here. Um, come and see me. I'm on the fourth floor. My name is Blake Edwards. So I said, well, I've gotten late for class. I've got to go to class. I said, okay, come after class. So I run into class. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I ran into Blake Edwards and, and I, we had this conversation. I'm sorry, I'm late and everything. And so the coach said, well, you ran into Blake Edwards. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, I came to class. He said, go back over there. So I went, I went to Blake's office and we sat and talked about sports cars. That was the interview. We talked about race cars and because he loved race cars and he had a Ferrari and I said, well, I have a Porsche. He said, really? Oh, yeah. I, would say that. I mean, it was this, I was so naive and so, so over enthusiastic about everything. And uh, so pretty soon I, uh, uh, he organized that I should be tested, do a screen test with Lee Remick um, for the part of Lee Remick's sister in uh in uh, the very movie that you just mentioned experiment and terror. terror and for the listeners who have not seen this movie it has a great setup basically lee ramick it works in a bank and one day uh she goes home and somebody accosts her in her garage you can't see his face but he says he's going to kill her unless she steals a hundred thousand dollars from the bank and he's going to keep an eye on her and so it's very dark and you know, this is nineteen. But very sinister because he has asthma. Right. <laughs> Raspy breath, right. And he, and he breathes. And so it's very sinister. And because Blake was very famous for all of his stylistic things, the way he photographed it and all was really rather intimidating. It was fantastic. It was, you know, it's funny because I was going to say in 62, we're starting to see mostly color movies. There's still black and white films being made, and they kind of remind me of that whole era of film noir, which are dark, shadowy movies. And this certainly qualifies. Uh, Lee Remick is such a treasure as well as you are. How was it working with her? Oh, 
you know, we, we, uh, she was just divine. And something like 23 years later, we worked together again. And she said, you know, it's exactly 23 years because when we did Experiment in Terror, she said, I had just given birth to my son. I said, oh my God. So you'll never forget that. And we we remained friends uh, throughout our li her life. And she, they, they shot most of it in San Francisco, although I assume the, the interior shots were shot on a soundstage in L.A.? Yes. Or was, yes. yes. All the interiors were in 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 LA at at Columbia. When you're swimming in the swimming pool for those swimming pool scenes, where were those shot? San Francisco. Okay, those were in San Francisco. Got it. And you got a chance to work with one of our just terrific character actors, uh, Ross Martin. Yes. I always Ross. remember Ross because when I was growing up, he was one of the stars of a TV show called Stump the Stars which is about pantomime, pantomime. Oh and my he, goodness. He and Stubby K were like regulars and they were so fantastic. And I thought that the sequence in the movie, perhaps your toughest sequence is when he captures you and forces you to undress. And that seemed like a terribly uncomfortable moment for you. Oh, it was very, you know, it was, a, it was very interesting because my mother was with me, you know, I was under age once again, and my mother was with me, and we were all billeted at the same uh, hotel, and, you know, when people are not working, they they wind up, you know, uh, you're on location, so you wind up saying, oh, well, let's go to the museum, or let's do something together, so we wound up doing things with Ross, so we became friends, and there was a certain time when I remember my mother later on told me that he took her aside and said, you know, um, I love, I love Stephanie and I love you and all that. And, you know, um, we're going to have to play some very, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to have to be very mean to her. And I, I just, uh, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to actually uh, do that to her. I mean, that was literally green as the, the, the fake tree behind you. You know, that, uh, uh, I I just didn't I believed everything and uh, so it was really sweet the way he the way he uh, broke it to me that he was going to we had to pretend that that I was uh, that he was really going to hurt me. So, it's very it's all very effective and I'm sure when you saw the completed film you were riveted like all of us. Well, I saw it recently. You know, there's a wonderful theater. Um, on land, um, you know, in what's called North Hollywood or No Ho, as it's called now. And there's a wonderful Lemley Theater that has three uh, cinemas in it. The uh, manager of that theater or the policy at those cinemas uh, is uh, to uh, to play retro films to so to bring back. The possibility of watching a 35 millimeter print in a theater projected and you see how brilliant the lighting was so they felt so we had a little q a sort of evening uh, with a lovely bunch of people who were who, who were enthusiastic about the film and and um and it was a, a very nice evening but for me it was astonishing to look at that film on a big screen again and see how brilliant the black and white photography was. We don't know how to do that anymore because everything is digitalized. 
and the digitalized photography is it's not clear it's not sharp it's like digital sound it's horrible you get you it's muffled you lose the sibilance of the of the texture of speech because it's digitalized and it's all it's all brought to a, a middle uh, resonance Stephanie, so, Stephanie um, I, I don't want to interrupt you because I know I, I love everything. Are we running out of time? <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting there, but I wanted to get a little bit into McClintock because the following year you got a chance to work with the Duke. You played John Wayne's daughter in one of the great Westerns. And I have to ask you, yeah, you know, one of the persons I would have always loved to have met would be John Wayne. I'm sure that it was quite an experience for you. Oh, yes. Well, I loved Western movies. And... Uh... Uh, was that the next picture? No, I don't think that was the next picture. Was Not it? quite the next one, because I know you, the do interns the, you was, did the interns. The interns was the next picture. And that was a very interesting story, because once again, a black and white film directed by David Swift, wonderful, who, who directed a lot of movies for Disney and all. And it was, uh, there were a, a lot of young and, well, Telly Savellas was in it when he hadn't done very much. And and Cliff Robertson. Cliff Robertson. Michael uh, Callan. Yeah, Michael Callan. You've got, you know that you've got the cast. Well, it's so, funny because when I saw that on your filmography, I had fond memories of seeing both the interns and the new interns and found, found them to be very entertaining movies because of that young cast. Well, it, they were not just entertaining, but years later, um, when I was able to uh, have enough uh, <laughs> enough presence uh, and enough um, of uh, uh, credibility to be able to talk with some of the former executives of, of Columbia and all. Um, that movie was so successful. They were in the midst, Columbia was in the midst of filming or financing David Lean's production of Lawrence of Arabia, which is probably the most perfect film on every level that you can imagine ever made, I guess. Um, certainly Omar Sharif's entrance in, uh, in Lawrence of Arabia, I don't think there has ever been an entrance on film that can equal his entrance in that movie. But anyway, it's one of my, I've only seen it about 13 times, but <laughs> and I love it to death. But apparently the revenue from this little movie called The Interns that didn't cost very much at all, it was such a huge success that they were able to finish um, Lawrence of Arabia. So you are directly known fact. You are directly <laughs> responsible. You're on <laughs> A vested interest in Lawrence of Arabia. Well, I haven't I haven't seen the interns in many years. So do me a favor or do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about the character you play in the interns. Ah, oh, well, the interns is about just that. It's about young nurses who are just out of school and doing their first um practical experience in a hospital um and from this the the period of time that they it the course of the movie takes place uh they will have had sufficient experience to go on to um uh, 
higher positions in other hospitals and all. It's just, it's the end of their education and the beginning of their residency or um, their real professional lives. So it catches these young doctors and young nurses at a certain point in their lives and uh, and what happens to them, the dramas, the, the tragedies, the, the loves, the, the, the heartbreaks, the, um, it, it just, it, 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 it touches all the uh, drama, dramatization uh, uh, buttons because uh, I think that's why it was successful because there's a little something for everybody. There's a comedy relief couple and then there's a older couple who have their dramas and, and, the, and then the young love, which is the young love, which was Jimmy MacArthur and myself. Oh, you were with James MacArthur. Oh, James very. MacArthur, yes. Oh, I love Jimmy MacArthur because I, as a kid, I had seen him in Swiss Family Robinson. And ah, yes. He was and, uh, and and we became friends at last in through uh, his life as well. And coincidentally, of course, his mother uh, was uh, the first lady of the American theater. And uh, his father was a famous uh, he was a screenwriter as well as uh, an author, but Helen Hayes was his mother. And many years later, I had the great privilege of working with Helen in uh, a Disney movie called The Boatnik. Not The Boatnik, it was called Herbie Rides Again. Uh, you were you co-starred with a Volkswagen. I co-starred with a Volkswagen, but I also co-starred with Helen Helen Hayes, Hayes absolutely. So, so I, I, we could talk more about the interns, but I, I want to jump into John Wayne for a bit because tell tell me your first impression of the Duke. Well, do you know uh, what should I say? Um, I went over to uh, I was told to go uh, to Paramount to go over to Paramount and, and go to Bat Jack, asked to go to Bat Jack, but I had an appointment uh, at Bat Jack with Michael Wayne, um, who was making this movie. Okay, and that Columbia was negotiating. They wanted to meet me because they were negotiating. Columbia loaned me out to, to do that movie. So this was all organized by Columbia. I I didn't audition for it. Those they, were in the day. Those were the days where contract players were at the mercy of their studios. If they wanted to loan you out, they loaned you out. That's right, and they got paid more money than you did. <laughs> so you were still on salary, but when they loaned you out, is when they got they got their uh, remuneration. So they just kept you on your four hundred dollars a week, and uh, and. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they got whatever they got for thousands. How long? How long were you under contract to Columbia? Five years. Five, Five years. years and fifteen motion pictures, and then they sold my contract to MGM to do the Girl from Uncle. Right. Right. So that's when I belonged. I was sold to MGM. <laughs> well, you are you are in the history books because you are the first female to lead a one-hour dramatic series, I believe. That's what they say, yes. I'm, yes. I, 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 so a few years ago, they, uh, there was a, 
television show, they, 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 a special that was being done called Pioneers of Television. And they come said, we'd like you to be on this, to be, you know, part of the show and everything. I said, well, I'd love to be a show, but I'm hardly a pioneer. They said, oh, no, 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 no. The girl from Uncle, and I never even realized that. And it was never, nothing was ever made of it. Today, oh my God, can you imagine if you were the first of anything? Today you'd be on Twitter, Schmitter, Vinner, and that other area. You'd be all over the internet. You'd be, you know, they'd be capitalizing. Well, you as a, as a former uh, uh, publicist would have capitalized like crazy on this. Oh, sure, Nobody, of course, of course. There was nothing mentioned about it. Isn't that funny? It's it's a whole different world. So you go over, oh, a big different world. Yes. Yes. So a you go over to Michael world. Wayne's office, uh, and of course he's preparing McClintock. Yes, and and the everything over there was like a big family, and and it was like the office was open. There were people walking in and out, and hi, this is so. Oh, hey, this is Harry, and this is going so this is that, and in walks John Wayne, and he's you know just as casual as ever. Oh, and and, and this uh, this is uh, she's going to play Becky, and he says, oh hi there, kid, and uh, you know, I it was <laughs> it was as if it was all very natural. Did, that, and it never stopped being that way. Where did they end up shooting the movie? We shot for, you know, it was like a 12 weeks film schedule, schedule. And it was, uh, uh, we shot in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, we shot in old Tucson. And then we we shot in, uh, oh my God, did we go to Tombstone? We did, we go to Tombstone. There were lots of places all around Arizona that we were on location. We were, we were in Arizona for quite a while. Now, one of the stories that's circulating on the internet is that uh, your director, Andrew McLaglin, had something happen. And according to these stories, John Ford came out and shot for a couple of days. Now, I'm, I'm gonna talk to you and ask you the question, is that true? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I'll give you the setup. So this is really because don't, I, 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 I wasn't a, the star of the movie. I didn't I didn't uh, hear everything that was going on in the background. I wasn't I wasn't meeting with the directors, the producer over lunch to find out all, you know, uh, all the internal workings of the production. Uh, I was just a hired hand, you know, and uh, Andy, uh, I showed up for work, uh, and uh, there was a lot of buzzing around. And I said, uh, da, 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 "This is blah 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 blah." And uh, I said, "What's going on? What's happening?" Well, Andy's uh, Andy got sick, and uh, he's not going to show up. And and Pappy's coming. I said, "Who?" They said, "Pappy, Pappy Ford." <gasps> John Ford? Oh my God! Well, first of all, apparently what had happened was John Ford considered John Wayne and his entire family his own property. It was, they were all his little chicks, you know. He was the big daddy. He was the captain, the admiral. And, uh, and, they, and they were making this movie. John Wayne's son is producing it. John Wayne's other son is uh, one of the co-stars. And Duke is, it's for Duke's, it's for John Wayne's company. And nobody 
and and the Bill Clothier, who who was John Ford's cameraman, who shot all those amazing amazing uh, uh, films of uh, with John Wayne, and that Ford directed. All of them were going to work, and Andy McLaughlin, Victor McLaughlin's son, who'd all been part of this. John Ford stock company. There was like a stock company of actors. There was the same crew every time for every John Ford movie and for every John Wayne movie because he absorbed everybody that he had grown up with. And nobody, nobody had asked John Ford to even read the script. They never asked him his opinion. And he was so angry. So when he came to take over for Andy for a couple of days, he came with as if saying, well, finally, they've asked me to do something and now I'm going to bail them out. You know, this was this was the attitude. But I tell you, the the feeling on the set was of such trepidation. Everybody was nervous. Everybody was worried. They were whispering in corners and all. And so we got we got dressed and made up and all of this. And we're all standing at attention on the set in this fabulous location where it was on a on a flat plane. And in order to get the the ingress and egress, sort of the arrival and the departure to get to this farm where you had a fabulous view, an extraordinary vista you could see forever. And you had to go into a gully and the gully was like an old riverbed and that's where the road was that would take you off the property to, to get to the paved road of the, of the highway near uh, Nogales just north of Nogales, um, uh, Mexico, Arizona border. So that the dust from the riverbed uh, flew, uh, if a car was coming, the dust would, oh, excuse me. Gesundheit. The dust, it's the dust from the riverbed, yeah. <laughs> so the dust, you could see the dust for days, you know. So we're all standing at attention and we see the dust from John Ford's car coming up the riverbed. And he arrives in a taxi because he decided he's going to take a taxi from the airport. He is not going to have anything done and no favors done for him. And he pulls up in this taxi in a, in a cloud of, smoke, of, of dust. And as the dust settles, the door creaks open and you see this old desert boot come out and leg and then the, he backs out and stands up and he's wearing an old safari jacket with stains all over it and a hat and, a, and he's got a, a pipe or something in his mouth and patch on his eye and he turns around and pushes John Wayne away who's opened the door and walks over to Bill Clothier, who's a diminutive man. I mean, he was only about five foot five and uh, puts his hand on his shoulder and said, okay, Bill, let's go to work. And that was his <laughs> evidence. I mean, it 
was as dramatic as any of the movies he'd ever made. <laughs> well, did you, uh, being such an adept rider from your early background riding horses, did you get a chance to do some riding on this movie? Uh, yes, a lot of riding, and uh, but there was a, there was a horse, the horse that was supposed to be my horse was privately owned, and the girl who owned the horse was constantly on the set saying, didn't want me to ride the horse to exercise it a little bit, so I got to know it and everything. And the first thing I had to do on the horse was a ride because the, the stunt girl had done it a few days before, riding off a hill as fast as you could and down across this plane coming toward the cameras and past the cameras. Well, unfortunately, they saw her. They saw her face, so they recognized her. So a few days later, I had no idea. I didn't talk to her. I had no idea what had happened, except that later on they said, "Would you do the? Can you do the ride? Because we saw her face." I said, "Sure, sure, absolutely." What I didn't know was that this Palomino had what we call a, a, a really cold mouth, is what we call it, meaning really cold uh, jaw, you know, so you pull it and, it and it doesn't respond. And later on, I talked to the stunt girl and she said, oh yeah, I had a sore back because I kept pulling and pulling to stop and it really took all my strength to finally get him to stop. No one told me this. And because I couldn't ride the horse because the owner was standing there all the time, we did this ride. And that horse, wham, it looked great, you know. We, out we come down this thing and ran it over the thing. And now I go to pull the horse back. And because uh, we've cleared the, the uh, we've cleared the camera and I, and the horse is not stopped. Not stopping. And I'm pulling it with one, uh, one uh, rein and with another rein and it's got its head down and it's going straight toward a barbed wire fence. Oh God! I mean, if it was a pro a proper fence, uh, maybe he it would have jumped it, which would have been fine. But in barbed wire, he wouldn't see. So uh, they had all these cowboy wranglers. So one of the stuntmen on a horse with a horse behind it actually took his life in his hand and rode in front of the fence, parallel to the fence, and uh, and. I hit him, <laughs> my horse hit him, my horse hit and went over his horse, and I went over that horse. Oh my God, it's like a, a highway ass collision. Over, ass over tea kettle, yeah, it was a, it was a wreck. <laughs> and uh, so all I remember is I opened my eyes and uh, I was on the ground, and I see John Wayne with tears on his eyes coming over to me and say, are you all right? Are oh, you all right? Everything. And all I could think of was, did you get it on camera? <laughs> <laughs> a true trooper. <laughs> but I, that cemented our, our, our relationship. And uh, so he was, he always, he was great to me. He was. You know, Steph Stephanie, these days, there's so much attention being played to decorum on film sets, you know, not harassing men and women, just making sure that everybody's professional and that we're getting rid of the sleazeballs who, you know, did what they did. Back in, back in the 70s, when 
or back in the mid 60s when you were a young a young actress a young attractive actress did you uh, find yourself uh, uh, being um, all compromised being harassed <laughs> no. no good I didn't have one single incident. Um, I don't know if that's compliment or if it's not a compliment, but uh, I never had any incident. And when you talk about professionals, I would say the lack of professionality today is one of the problems because there are so many people. Don't forget, the industry was a place where, where sons followed fathers into the business. So the crew, you know, I would there would I, I would go from studio to studio and I would know everybody on the crew. We'd all work together one place or another, or I went to high school with them or some, you know, it was a they were professionals. They weren't in it uh because uh they you know it was just a it was a passing gig. They weren't in it because they spent a couple of years in film school and they had a little, you know made a movie with their phone. They were professionals. In a world of professionalism, when you think that when we did The Girl From UNCLE, we made 29 episodes a year. 29. Now, what is it, 10? Maybe 13 if you're lucky. Maybe. Maybe. No, it's true. And it's we true. made an hour show in seven days. Crazy. Shooting 35 millimeter cameras, which are big, and because of the speed of the film being a, bit, a lot slower than it is now, uh, we had to use big art lights and all, when we're shooting out of doors. Lots of equipment. So moving from place to place uh, and doing a lot of setups in a day was uh, very difficult to do and could never have been done without the professionalism of those crews. You another film, another film. Couldn't do it today. Another People film of yours that is very, an, excuse me, another film of yours which is very well thought of from this period was a film you made with David Jansen called Warning Shot. Which oh, is that, yeah, that was, uh, I, I enjoyed that. I loved David and uh, and uh, George Grizzard murdered me in that. Uh, I remember meeting him uh, on the set. Uh, I said, Hello. he came up and said, hello, my name is George Grizzard. I'm going to murder you. And I said, oh, yes, very good. I don't think we'll ever meet because it, it, it doesn't uh, appear that, that I even see you. <laughs> so, How did uh, you like David Jansen was always one of my favorites. My mother was in love with David Jansen. He was such a manly man. He must have been fun to work with. He was a he was a great deal of fun, and also one of those things where you know he uh, became a friend over the years with uh, and I knew some of his wives and uh, sure yeah. sure. Now you've you've had a long relationship for obvious reasons with Robert Wagner. I mean, you've done a lot of work together. When did you very first meet Robert Wagner? Uh, on the set of uh, West Side Story. Oh, when you were auditioning, was he no, auditioning? When no, when we were doing rehearsals, when we were rehearsing, because I rehearsed with with the company for almost two months. So you you keep saying that you were fired. So I was. 
So you were auditioning for Velma, but they no, I wasn't auditioning. I didn't. I auditioned. I did sixteen dance auditions and three screen tests, and then I was I hired to start uh, rehearsals, and then. The company we would rehearse and uh, and and uh, the the sharks and the jets uh, would do we do a ballet class in the morning and then we'd go into separate places and start rehearsing our individual things. None of the principals were yet cast, and then slowly, 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 after about three four weeks, uh, the the principals started to come in, and I think who was the first one? Russ Tamlin was the first one to be hired, and he joined us. And and then another week later or so, um, uh, who came on? Uh, Rita, I think Rita came on next, and then George, and uh, and then uh, Richard Beamer, and then Natalie. So it all happened very slowly. Um, and in the meantime, we, uh, everybody was rehearsing themselves. I mean, we were rehearsing everything, 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 so that it was it was letter perfect, inch perfect. You were absolutely on your marks. Everybody was, uh, so that took a, a while to make sure that everything was going to be. Got so it. So was I, Robert uh, auditioning as well? Um, what was no, he No, doing? no, 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 he was married to Natalie. Oh, he was visiting Natalie. Got it, got it, got it. And did, did had you had any encounters with Natalie since you were a ballet student with her back when? No. No, all new, all new. Uh -huh. Got it, got it. Well, you know something, we could talk for hours because it, it, you're so enthusiastic about your memories and you have such clear vision of everything. It's just a delight to hear because the listeners are hearing history from the horse's mouth you know, directly from you. And I think that's just so beautiful. And and I really appreciate your, the, all of your work. I mean, you, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about wildlife, but maybe we'll do it another time. Yeah, we'll see if, if you want to do it again before I, I, I'm going to Africa shortly. So maybe we could uh, do it either before or when I come back. Maybe when you come back, I'll give you some time and uh, it, it'll be, it's interesting because uh, I think Bud is going to get me an interview with Robert in the next month. I'm hoping to do, uh, I want to talk to Robert about his early career when he was under contract to Fox, and uh, that's going to be fun. And then uh, Bud knows so many people. I mean, he's kind oh, of yes, like he a, does. He's, 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 you know, he's, he's great, and he's going to get me an interview with Con Connie Towers and uh, Nancy Olson, uh, both of whom also Worked have great with and both of them whom worked with Bill Holden. Exactly. So you exactly. ask ask um, ask Nancy Olson. Ask Nancy about Bill because they they worked together. They did so many. They were both under contract to Columbia to uh, Paramount, and they did so many movies together. And I remember Bill told me, even to the extent that uh, um, uh, they were doing a movie and doing a love scene when she she was pregnant and she had, was suffering from morning sickness. And every once in a while, they do this love scene and she get perspire uh, when perspiration would break out on her forehead. And uh, and just as as Bill said, and I thought, oh my God, that's an extraordinary performance. But really, what it was that she she had to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Um... 
Bill is uh, such a legend in my family in terms of just, uh, I think the, one of the very first movies I ever saw was my mother took me to see Love is the Many Splendored Thing with Jennifer Jones. But just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you know the publicist Stan Rosenfield, who has a big agency in town. Stan and I consider, our, consider ourselves connoisseurs of Stalag 17. We've oh, probably yeah. each We've probably be, each watched it about 50 times. And we did a whole <laughs> podcast just talking about Sefton and um, Holden's great characters. And everybody was saying, well, that year it was Montgomery Clift for From Here to Eternity. And I said, no, 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 no. The minute that Bill Holden steps out of the, the um, at the very end, steps out of the trap door and smiles at the camera and gives a salute, he won the Oscar right there. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, there was that, that was, quintessentially built you know, that was that, quintessentially that, built. that that twinkle you know well we have been listening to wonderful historical memories from stephanie powers about her early history and some great stories about her films and like we've talked about we'll talk again we'll talk about africa and you've been listening to saturday night at the movies i'm your host steve rubin our producer's ben shrewsbury uh, keep keep listening. We're going to bring some great guests your way forever. We just have so much fun doing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. My pleasure. Thank you. And, and have and safe travels. Forward to seeing you again, Steve. Absolutely, and safe travels to Kenya. And uh, we'll be in touch. Lovely. Okay. Take care.